I'm Jim Juno, and this is Lights, Camera, Author. Albert Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman remain the most successful producing partnership in movie history. Together, they were responsible for the phenomenally successful James Bond movie series. Separately, they brought kitchen sink drama to the screen, made a star out of Michael Caine in the Harry Palmer films, and were responsible for the children's classic Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But the relationship was fraught almost from the very beginning. With such contrasting personalities, their interactions often span out of control. They managed to drive away their coveted star, Sean Connery, and ultimately each other. Loved and hated in equal measure, respected and feared by their contemporaries, few people have loomed as large over the film industry as Broccoli and Saltzman, yet their lives were in very different directions. Broccoli was feted as a Hollywood royalty, whereas Saltzman ended up a forgotten recluse. Robert Sellers is an author and journalist. He is the author of Hellraisers, Peter O'Toole, The Definitive Biography, and The Battle for Bond. His new book is called When Harry Met Cubby. He writes for Empire, The Daily Mail, and The Guardian. And I talked to him about his new book, When Harry Met Cubby. Robert Sellers, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you, Jim? I'm doing great. I hope you're doing doing as well. Yeah, fantastic. Um, surviving. I'm getting, surviving. Getting, I'm getting through. I'm getting through it. That's basically all anybody can do right at this moment in time. Absolutely, but, yeah. yeah so your new a, book. It's yeah. a weird state of affairs. Talking about uh, James Bond at a time like this is a bit odd, but I guess people want to be entertained. People are watching a lot of TV and people are, are reading a lot of books at the moment. So, uh, yeah, it's a good thing and, to talk about. You know, and books are having, especially uh, PDF or Kindle versions, yeah. are making a, are making a big comeback. Uh, well, splash on the scene, because yeah. there's no there's no human contact. And, Absolutely. Uh, but that, your that, new- could be, that that could be one of the sort of the the positive things to come out of this that that more people are turning to books and and, and reading. So hopefully it's a uh, it, it's a habit that people will keep and uh, carry on from from now on because. Uh, Books, uh, the sale the sale of books is certainly up in the in the UK, yeah. And seeing that, and it is here too in the United States. So, um, and you're in London, is that correct? Sort of, yeah, just just outside of London, yeah. All righty, and and for regular listeners of the show, uh, they know that that lights camera author is based in Richmond, Virginia. So we're uh, we're going across the seas, and yes. um, across <laughs> the pond, as some people say. And um, now, your new book when. When Harry Met Cubby. Yes. That is that is the story of Harry Saltzman and Cubby Broccoli. That's right. Yeah. The, the, the Bond producers, yeah. Yes, the men who created, well, I won't say created, but they created the James Bond movies. Well, they, they yeah, they, they they brought James Bond to the screen. Lots of people had tried and failed, and, and these these were the guys who finally did it. Right. Everybody knows that Ian Fleming was the creator of the James Bond novels. and But Broccoli and Saltzman, they were the two. And, and in reading your book, it's amazing what, what struck me is that they almost kind of just accidentally fell into uh, the James Bond business, so to speak. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Well, I think um, Cubby had Cubby had sort of wanted to do the Bond books before, uh, sort of in the mid fifties. He he was uh, he was based. He's a real Anglophile. Was Cubby? He loved loved the UK, and came to work here in the mid fifties and and pretty much stayed. Uh, he had a house in Beverly Hills as well, but he but he um, continued to have a residency in London. And of course, all the Bond films were made in the UK at Pinewood Studios. So he was a, it was a real Anglophile, and he had a production company called uh, Warwick Films, which sort of churned out quite a lot of pot boilers and sort of formulaic action movies. And sort of in the mid nineteen fifties, he had this idea to do a. Uh, to do the Bond films, and uh, unfortunately, he'd arranged to have this meeting with Ian Fleming. Um, but on the day of the meeting, his wife uh, became very seriously ill, and he had to uh, not cancel it, but he had to send his partner, uh, a, a chap called Irving Allen, who was a little bit, um, so we say, earthy in his opinions and, and views. <laughs> he was quite a, your typical cigar-chomping sort of Harry Cohen-type producer. And he didn't like the Bond books at all. He, he, he thought Cubby was wasting his time with them. And he went to see Fleming in Cubby's place and basically told Fleming that his, 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 um, his, his books were, weren't even worth comic, you know, being made into comic books. And uh, so that... that uh, so yeah, Cubby um, almost got the bonds in in the mid fifties, but it, but his partner sort of um, ruined it for him. But uh, it probably uh, it probably wouldn't have worked in the fifties. I think it had to be the swinging sixties for Bond for Bond to work. I think it was the perfect time. See, that's what a lot of people don't realize is that Bond, the Doctor No, the first movie, came on the scene right in the beginning of. Well, what you would call the mod sixties. Uh, yes, absolutely. Perfect timing. Everything was 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 right. You had Playboy uh, was was up and running, becoming really popular in the states. Um, the the Beatles. I think our oh, Doctor No opened. I think the first a uh, couple of days after the Beatles' first single. Um, so it was all happening at the same time. So the zeitgeist. It was it was perfect timing. And a lot of people don't realize this, or they may have known it at the time, but it's been forgotten that Ian Fleming himself came on the scene to American audiences when, um, was it Life magazine asked John F. Kennedy what he was That's reading? Right. That's right, 1961, the year before the first Bond film. Yeah, so that uh, that helps. Um, his top 10 um, books, whether they were his top 10 all-time books or his current sort of the books he was reading at the moment um but yeah number 10 was from rush with love uh, and that just took bond off in america in a big big way they they it was a sensation overnight really in, in america and it helped um i think it helped cubby and harry when they were trying to find an american studio to back the film so uh that that really was i think i think jfk has a lot to, we have a lot to thank him for mm -hmm. and and then dr no becomes uh, becomes the first Bond movie they start to work on. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's first off, Harry and Cubby, you mentioned in your book, if two people could be less alike, we no, wouldn't. No, there's no way we'd know how because there was nobody who were who were more different than these two guys. Chalk and cheese, absolutely. They really they were they were not the same human being at all. Even they were they said remarkable partnership. And the chemistry worked. Certainly at the beginning, it sort of fell apart towards the end. 
But certainly for the first few movies, they they worked, they sparked off each other perfectly. Uh, but they were completely different people. Um, they also operated in different worlds as well. Um, if you went to a, a dinner party at Cubby's and then you went to a dinner dinner party at Harry's a few weeks later, there would be no face you would recognise from, from either one. They had a completely different set of friends. Uh, they lived a completely different, separate uh, life to each other. And they were very, very, very different. And the way was what I found quite interesting writing the book was how their personalities was brought brought to bear upon the films as well. You know, how their uh, characteristics and personalities in, informed the way they approached uh, working on the movies. Cubby was much more... Um, he, he was sort of the... The, the eye of the public he he was sort of on the public side um he would uh, if he was in a in a city and a, a bond film was showing at the local cinema he would go to the cinema and watch the movie and gauge the the reaction of the audience he would even go and see the the, the cinema manager at the end and, and ask ask him you know were anybody any complaints anybody you know saying the film's too violent or, or too, too sexual. He, he, he was sort of always um, on on the, uh, the the public side. Um, he was sort of the, the soul of Bond, and and Harry was much more the pizzazz and the, the sort of the show the showmanship of Bond. Now one of them. Now one of them extended to the set because when they would come on the set, one of them would be like very friendly and. And outgoing, and then the other one would be coming, and the, and everybody would be going, "Oh, it's I believe it's Harry. Harry's coming today. Don't yeah, don't mess around." They were sort of yeah, you could say they were good cop, bad cop. I guess you know, uh, Cubby being the good cop, and and Harry being the, and they they were perfectly suited for those. They sort of fitted perfectly for those for those parts. I mean, Harry sort of did all the dirty work, you know. I mean, Cubby Cubby liked to be loved, you know, and everybody did love Cubby. The crew loved Cubby because Harry was the one, you know, they'd be in their office and they'd have to sack somebody or they'd have to ask this person to do this kind of job. And Cubby would say, Harry, can you go and tell them? You know, it was that kind of relationship. Uh -huh. You know, Cubby didn't like going on and, and sort of being, the, being the, 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 the tough, nasty producer. So that was... So that was Harry's job, and I think Harry quite enjoyed doing it, personality-wise. And, and the Cubby, you know, Cubby knew everybody's name. You know, he would go on the set, and he'd know the, the the carpenter's name. He would know the the sound editor, the the name of the sound editor. He would go on and say, "Oh, it's your your wife's birthday tomorrow. Here's here's a little present for your wife." He would know all these things. Harry couldn't give a damn what the name of the sound editor was. You know, he he was just. You know, just making the movie, get, getting getting it done. You know, Amazing. so I, I think yeah. Cubby had that much more personal connection with the people he was. Harry was much more the sort of the old style Hollywood producer. You know, the shouting through the megaphone kind of uh, filmmaker. Cubby was a bit more, a bit more laid back and relaxed. So, so Harry was like the the guy with the riding breeches and the whip absolutely and... yeah he was he was the eric von stroheim i, I guess yeah. In the partnership. yeah yeah uh, and uh cubby was much more benign yeah now they get to they get or, or they get the james bond rights for almost a almost a well very cheap price i believe well uh, it, was, it was harry harry who got them first actually um mm -hmm. 
it's uh, interesting that they were both uh, Cubby's production company Warwick had folded. Um, they they'd made a film called The Trial of Oscar Wilde, which is a superb film. If, you, if you've never seen it, it's it's worth hunting down and watching. It's P Peter Finch plays uh, Oscar Wilde. It's a beautifully made film, but it died the death at the box office, mm -hmm. and um, as a result, uh, Cubby's production company Warwick folded, and he was sort of in a in a in a strange sort of place that he didn't really know where to go next. And um, he was thinking of going back to America and sort of trying to go back to, to sort of making movies in America. And then his wife, Dana, said, well, you've always wanted to do the Bond books. Why don't you, this is your opportunity to to, to do that, you know, your, your dream. And uh, he, found, um, he found out that Harry Saltzman had recently bought uh, the rights to the Bond books. And they had a mutual friend called Wolf Mankiewicz, who was a, a playwright and screen, screenwriter. And it was Wolf Mankiewicz who brought these two men together. They never met. They, they'd been living in London, I guess, for about 10 years, each of them, but they'd never crossed paths before. And they met up. And Cubby said, you know, I want to, uh, I want to do the Bond films. Will you sell me the rights? And Harry said, no. Um, I want to do them as well. So let's 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 join forces and uh, and, and make a deal. That, that's what happened. They they joined forces. Again, it's zeitgeist, like you said. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, a lot of partnership. This is an interesting thing. People telling me a lot of partnerships, um, in the, especially in the, in the entertainment business, um, happen because you're working on a film or a TV or a play and you you're the director and you you really get on with the producer or you get on with the writer you sort of you realize you're on the same wavelength you're 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 you've got very similar aesthetics and and uh, the way you approach the work is the same so you sort of join forces because you like each other you become friends so that's how a lot of partnerships are formed it was totally different with harry and cubby it was it was it wasn't through any kind of they didn't like each other particularly. Uh, it was it was sort of a business. It was sort of a business deal, you know. So it it started the, their relationship started sort of on a on a business footing rather than a, than a personal one. So later on, when things started to go wrong, they they really went wrong. Yeah, because oh, yes. the sort of the foundations were were wasn't it was sort of clay rather than concrete, you know. No, they get they get um, the movie going, and they're looking for, of course, who is going to play uh, James Bond. And the thing that struck me, being a child of the 60s, is that I had forgotten that this was not the James Bond franchise that we that we see today. As you say, this in one of the chapters in your book is just another movie. Uh, yeah. This this was not supposed to be a big time movie doctor no no absolutely it, not yeah yeah i mean uh i think the budget was under a million dollars um it was you know in fact in the industry it was it was almost a joke um that they were making a bond film because the bond novels were sort of seen as sort of trash pulp fiction you know that they, they didn't have uh, any sort of artistic quality about them at all um they, these were pot boilers um and when a lot of people turned them down, a lot of actors turned them down when they approached them to be Bond. Um, but Harry in the Grant, end, yeah, Cary Grant, Grant, yeah, yeah, Cubby was uh, very good friends with uh, Cary Grant. Uh, 
he was the best man at his wedding in fact um and they went to Cary grant they went to people like james mason um david niven uh, but i think in the end they probably made the right choice with sean connery i think i think yeah. <laughs> again like- the zeitgeist you know it's it just all happened it's amazing that sort of the the, the timing of everything that connery was there and was a he, lot of he, he was making a movie called darby o'gill and the little people correct well, that was one of the films that they looked at. Um, I think they were sort of looking at stuff that he'd done. Um, that was one of the movies that uh, Cubby looked at. In, in a, he was in Hollywood, and he, it was a film that Connery had made in, in sort of the mid-50s. And, and he ran it uh, at, the, at a sort of a, a viewing theatre. And he wasn't quite sure what to make of him and he phoned his wife dana and said can you come down to the viewing theater and have a have a look at this guy and she came down they watched it and then at the end he asked her well what do you think and she said wow <laughs> this is <laughs> this guy just yeah yeah the, the women are gonna love him so i think it was dane dana had a lot to do it's always the wife isn't it it's going to be, yeah. <laughs> makes the decisions and i think that was the the sort of the um the the, the final thing that yeah yeah, you know, it's, it's got to be him. But his, I don't want to say audition, but when he first met uh, the Cubby and uh, was Harry in there too, where he came in yeah, looking rather scruffy. I'll say yeah, that. Yeah. Well, they had, a, they had, a, they, they, when they got together, they, they uh, created a film production company called Eon, which is still, yeah. still going today. And uh, they, they took offices in Mayfair, um, which was the old Warwick where Cubby used to to run Warwick, uh, so he kept the same offices. It just became the Eon office now, and uh, and yeah, they uh, Sean came, and uh, they they he was sort of <laughs> dressed. Deli- I think deliberately. I mean, he wasn't. He was, this is a guy from Scotland. He's working in class. He used to be a lorry driver. He's, you know, he's not. He didn't come in. Uh, to impress, you know, he, he didn't. To, he didn't wear the tuxedo with. with yeah, take me, take me as I am, or, or or not, you know. And he was thumping the desk and saying, "This is how I'm going to do it." It was. It was to some extent. It was a. It was a bit of an act because at the time he wasn't. Was there wasn't much work around for him, and uh, he didn't really want to come across as a, a starving actor type, desperate for for, mm-hmm. for something, but he left and they were quite suitably impressed but it was they looked out of the window and they watched him cross the street and they and they just thought he looked like a panther the way he moved and they just looked at each other and thought that's him he's the guy he just moved like a like a like a like a leopard you know exactly and then they they looked at julie christie for the for the love interest but she was too hippie for them, weren't she? Wasn't she? Yeah, and also she did. She didn't have um, sort of suitable female attributes. If you see what I mean, yeah. Well, too flat-chested. Too. Yeah, they, I mean, yeah. Probably, that, another thing. Going back to something you pointed out before, how different they were. Um, I mean, Cubby was a, a boob man, shall we say? I mean, he liked to cast the, the Bond women. That was one of his, the things that he liked to do. He loved casting the Bond women. Um, and Harry Harry loved the gizmos and the gadgets. That was Harry's thing. So when you're watching a Bond film and you see all these amazing gadgets, that, that was 
that was Harry, really. That was that was the, the, his specialty. And at the time, they had um, they had amazing contacts. They had these people in the Pentagon who were sort of sending them all this latest stuff. Um, you know, the, the the laser beam in Goldfinger. That was the first time in a movie where an industrial laser had ever been seen, and that was from the Pentagon. Um, in Thunderball, uh, the ending where the the yacht blows up. That was thanks to the the Pentagon sending them this sort of experimental rocket fuel because they, they realized they didn't have the, the dynamite big enough to blow up this huge luxury yacht. So they got this uh, rocket fuel from the Pentagon and it just blew the whole thing to pieces. And about 10 miles away, the, the high street in Nassau or the Bahamas, every single window was blown out <laughs> with this oh experimental God. rocket fuel. And they had this guy called uh, the General who used to... Uh, you know, come to England, uh, go through in cus- going through customs at the airport with his and in his suitcase was all these guns and bombs and goodness knows what. So uh, yeah, they 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 had contacts in all these amazing places because Bond had to be up to date. You know that that was the thing with the Bond films; it still is today. They, it's got to have the latest gadget. It's got to have the latest bit of technology. It's got to have the latest car. And it was the same back then. See, that's the thing. Is that, and But amazingly, nobody expected Dr. No to be a hit, especially United Artists. You said that, didn't someone say, well, all we're going to lose is like $850,000? Yeah, they, they, they just didn't get it. You know, the early, early audiences didn't get it. They're not, I'm not, it's no surprise because there hadn't been a film like Dr. No before, you know. Mm-hmm. Dr. No changed cinema, you know, it's... Uh, all these action movies and spy films that we have now, Mission Impossible and all this kind of stuff. Bond was the uh, was the first, you know, it was the blueprint. So no no one had seen a, a movie like this. So I guess they didn't really know what to make of it. And uh, it was the public who who, uh, who made it a hit. You know, it, it became a huge success. Now, after, the, after Dr. No, from Russia with Love, Thunderball, I mean, Goldfinger, it takes off like a skyrocket. It does, it does indeed. But the interesting thing, after um, after Doctor No, the, the next film they made wasn't actually a bomb film. Right. Uh, it was a film called Call, Call Me Buana, which is a film that has sort of been forgotten, uh, probably for a very good reason. It's a Bob, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of one of Bob Hope's lesser efforts, but it was a Bob Hope movie because Harry knew Bob. They'd made a film together in the, in the fifties, so so Harry had a sort of a a relationship with Bob and he got this sort of spy spoof comedy um, and they were going to make it. And at the time, Cubby was sort of sitting in the office looking at this script and thinking, well, we're not really going to make this. It's awful. And he had a friend in, in the, uh, um, a newspaper reporter called Donald Zeck, who was up in, in working in Liverpool. And this guy, this reporter was telling Cubby about this amazing um, pop group who were sort of selling out all the nightclubs and were getting really, really popular. And they were the Beatles. And they said, you've got the chance to make the first Beatles movie. You can get these guys on contract and, and, and make, a, make their first movie. So Cubby was trying to get Harry to sort of change his mind about the Bob Hope movie and do a, a movie about the Beatles. And Harry said, well, I've never heard of the Beatles, but everybody knows <laughs> who Bob Hope is. So we're doing the Bob Hope movie. So incredibly, these guys, Harry and Cubby, could have made the first Bond movie and then straight afterwards could have made the first Beatles film. Amazing. 
made a Bob Hope film instead. And that, that, was the last, that was the last film, the sort of non-Bond film they made as a partnership. After that, it was Bond, 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 Bond. Yeah, they just made, made a Bond a year, yeah. Also, now, after they get, after they get going with the Bond movies, Suddenly, Sean Connery, I mean, yes, he's, he's the star of the movie. He's the, becomes a superstar. Yeah. Uh, but he also becomes a little bit harder to deal with, doesn't he? Well, he, do, he does. I mean, by, by Thunderball, he's, he's the number one box office attraction in the world. Mm-hmm. And he's also the most recognizable person on the planet. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to be Sean Connery in 1966? Because everywhere he goes... It's James Bond. It's James Bond. He's instantly recognised. Oh, yeah. So there was that aspect of it. Um, yeah, he's a very private man, Connery. You know, he likes his privacy. So that was tough. Um, the money, obviously, <laughs> Sean and money go together quite well. Um, he got six thousand dollars for the first film. Amazingly, I know it. It's, yeah. You know, and that's <laughs> you know that's like you know a lunch today on, on on some of these movies. You know what he paid for lunch, um, but his his money got gradually increased each film, but it never reached the heights that the producers were getting. The producers had this great deal with United Artists; they got a massive bonus each time they were there. And Sean didn't get any of that, and he felt that um, really he was fifty percent of the success of Bond was down to him, and he was probably right. Yes. Um, but he wasn't getting 50% of the benefits. So his, his relationship sort of from Goldfinger onwards, which was the third one, sort of began to sour. And by You Only Live Twice, which was the fifth one, it was open warfare, particularly with Harry. Cubby, he could stand slightly more. But <laughs> Harry and, and Sean, by You Only Live Twice, their relationship was so bad that um, if if Harry walked on the set, Connery would stop work. The, and the one thing, oh. and there's a there's a there's a story that um, he, he was actually filming a scene, and he and Connery was halfway through his dialogue, and he saw Harry walking on, and he just stopped. He just stopped talking, mm. and Harry had to walk out, and they carried on. Now they uh, after after Sean Connery left, it was George Lazenby for one movie, and they kind of like kept the uh, pattern, try to get an unknown and build around yeah. him. Lazenby got really bad advice, says from somebody that didn't think James Bond was cool anymore. And yeah. um, well, uh, you can see you can sort of understand that because when uh, he, when when George was making the film 1969, it's the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. We've got the civil rights movement. We've got um, hippies and sort of all the, you know, society of drugs was sort of, you know, and there's this guy with a, with a, with a sort of a tuxedo and a short back and signs. And he looked a bit anachronistic, you know. So you can understand George thinking, well, you know, Bond's completely out of step with culture at the moment. You've got Easy Rider movie. Um, so you, you can understand but incredibly, it's still going today, isn't it, Bond? You know, so. Yes. Who, who would and, have known? Who would have known that it would have been? Well, and what I liked about Sean Connery coming back, not, I mean, Diamonds Are Forever may not have been the best Sean Connery Bond movie, but he got, a, was it $1.5 million he got for Something that? Like- yeah, yeah, which he gave to charity. Yeah, to, which yeah, he used it to he used it to create a, a Scottish acting uh, academy sort of. Well, it was a, it was an educational fund where people um, who didn't have sort of um, 
finance could could sort of pursue their dream, whatever whatever it was, whether you wanted to be an actor or whether you wanted to be a writer, musician, or a sports person, you know, you could um, apply for a scholarship, and this money would pay for that for you to, you know, pursue your 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 dream. Yeah, that's a that's a great thing to do with the money. Yeah, fantastic, and. Um, that's what probably the only reason he came back and did the Bond film because he thought, you know, I could launch because he was trying to launch it at the time. And he thought that if I get a million, billion and a half, that that would launch the charity, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, Robert, I appreciate you taking time and talking with me today. Robert oh, Sellers. Oh, Robert Sellers is the author. When Harry Met Cubby is the book. It's about the gen. It's about the how. James Bond movies came to be and again Robert thank you again no my pleasure thanks very much indeed you, you take care you can find more information about the book when Harry met Cubby at the history press.co.uk for a light camera author I'm Jim Juno